You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers. The 308, the 270, the 28 Nosler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 out 6, and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, welcome back. Adam here for the Land and Legacy Podcast. Uh, We are going to start gearing up as we're kind of shifting out of the major rut hunting um we've got just if you've paid attention to our instagram stories uh and our facebook page you'll notice that we've had a lot of clients have successful seasons this year and uh a lot of that has to do with uh, a lot of the work they've been doing over the last year or two or three or even four with some of them over the course of the the beginning of land and legacy these guys have been hammering away and they're starting to put some uh really get some nice deer on the wall but overall they're just having a major impact on their farm and their overall neighborhood so we're going to jump in this week with Louis Zinn of western illinois and we're going to chat with him about his successful fall Louis, thanks for joining us man it's a pleasure to be here adam i'm i'm uh i'm pretty pumped up i've been a long time listener probably since your like day one podcast so I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty pretty hum pretty humbled by you asking me to be on oh that's awesome man i appreciate you coming on i should say that you're also uh so you're in western i, I don't know what region you'd call say you're from but you're also in real estate so if you want to give yourself a plug you're with sullivan land company that's right yep sullivan auctioneers has been in the auction business for i mean a long long time they've sold a lot of land in the midwest and throughout the country and then they just started a, a land company uh you know, so we can list not not only auction properties, but also list properties if the client wants to go that route. So just another option. There you go. So um, they could find you. You're on Instagram and Facebook, so I'm sure they could find you or look you up at Sullivan Land Company. That's right. Yep. You got to be on social media to be relevant these days, right? Oh, man. Yeah. 
yeah, to make sure you're getting your facts straight, right? Yeah, you can't be. No, no fake news. You got fact, fact checkers. <laughs> That's right. Well, you've had quite the fall, um, and yeah. so let's uh, you know give us a little rundown on what what all's happened for you up there. Well, uh, I, I guess it's probably been as good as we could expect for a hunting season. I, my wife and I are expecting baby number three on Thursday of this week. So I'm, um, I'm actually kind of glad I, I don't have any more buck tags because my days were limited probably after this week anyway, to get much hunting in. But, um, yeah, I had a, a great season, uh, caught a good cold front in mid October and killed a real nice deer, uh, not on my home farm, uh, but over in another County, uh, you know, it was just, a it was just a textbook deal where we were keeping track of the deer on camera and velvet. And, and then when he came out of velvet, he was still on the same, you know, on the same area, on the same food plot, and, you know, put the blind up. And I mean, uh, first week of October, it got cold and I didn't get a chance to get over there and hunt him, but I checked the camera and he was daylighting. And then the next cold front, which would have been October 15th, I went in there and, and, and got it done. So that was pretty cool. That hunt well actually, is on uh, my good friend Casey Shootman. He's the producer of the Management Advantage. Uh, that hunt's actually on YouTube, and it's it's titled Town and Country. Uh, it's it's kind of a funny story about uh, a minivan that we had to stuff a deer in the back of. So uh, you'll have to everybody have to check that out. <laughs> awesome job. And uh, yeah, that that was that was cool. Just having that experience, and then. Um, did, you know, did a little bit of hunting on my farm, but not a lot. Um, you know, there was a deer that I had my sights on that I elected that not to shoot this year, just to give him another year to maybe to maybe blow up into something really big. So I just kind of stayed away from his core area. And then um, just uh, would have been November 20th, what, two Fridays ago, um I killed one of our target bucks opening morning of shotgun season, which was, which was cool. Uh, 9am, uh, sat in a spot where I thought I'd just be doing mainly observing, but, um, there was that one hot doe and she, she, she definitely got him, uh, put in the back of the ranger because she just drug him right by my blind. And I ended up killing him at 50 yards and he was a big, pretty sure he's a five-year-old, uh, had trail picks and history with him for several years. And he's a deer we called, uh, we nicknamed him Marv's eight. Uh, we, we got to nickname our deer just because, you know, there's just so many of them. And, you know, I don't know how guys, I, I know guys give, give us grief for nicknaming our deer, but, uh, I don't know how you keep them straight if you don't, you know, you know especially if you got a big inventory. Well, that's kind of a funny story. Cause I, you know, I, I struggle with that because you used to name them like where it's like, oh, this one's Flyer, this one's Flare, this one's that, and it was kind of like, what? Are we, I don't know about naming these deer. So I tr- I attempted <laughs> to not name deer, and then I realized that you you do it just with other stupid, even worse names than the already uh, lame names <laughs> that we give them anyway. It was like, oh yeah, you know, yeah. the big wide nine. Oh yeah, the big wide ten. Oh oh, the short short time ten. It's like, why don't we just, yeah. you know, give them something even better? than you? We could call them Fred, Bob, and Dale. I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I attempted to not name them, and it was driving one of my buddies so crazy. He kept calling me. He's like, why aren't you naming that deer? 
and it was a deer that yeah. that now took the name Donuts. Really, really nice deer. And I was like, I don't know. It's just I, I I don't know about naming deer. And he goes, You got to name. It's driving me crazy. And that's where Donuts makes you go nuts. So uh, he got the name Donuts. <laughs> but, name. Yeah. So Marv, the Marv name. Eight. What did you call him? Mar- Mar- we called it Marv's Eight because my father-in-law. Uh, you know, he's not a he's not a trophy hunter. Uh, I, I don't even like that word but uh he just always thought that was a cool looking eight pointer even at the age of like two and a half and i said well you like him so much we'll just call him marv's eight so that deer grew into something pretty you know he kind of got uh, a little funky on his left side i believe uh he he went from just a nice straight big framed eight to he was actually a uh a seven he would have been a three by four and he and he kind of had a little drop tie, and he grew some stuff down around his base. So he kind of turned into a non-typical. Um, he was it's pretty special to kill him on your own farm or on my own farm. So yeah, worked out pretty good. That's awesome. So you got Marv's eight, and then how many days later when your buddy? Yeah, so so my one of my best hunting buddies, Casey. He he hunts. We try to hunt together on on opening day gun season, or if he's got to work, we always team up the next day. But he actually we hunted that opening morning and he, we were, I checked cameras and I kind of had, well, both the deer we ended up killing, uh, I kind of had them figured out. I knew they were down in that area. I knew there was does in that area. Uh, it's always dynamite in the rut, uh, in that area. So he went and sat probably in one of my bet, better tree stands kind of closer to my Eastern line. And then I sat a little bit further West and I knew, we'd we'd be between her you know they would be between us and we'd have a pretty good chance well i saw marv's eight at maybe be maybe seven thirty a.m i actually saw him five different times that morning because he was literally just doing circles around the big uh kind of a big bedding area um and i think that doe she didn't want anything to do with him so she was going in there and hiding but casey had actually saw marv's eight at maybe be maybe like 8 a.m I ended up killing him at nine, but he couldn't get a shot at him. And and then he came my way. And then uh, I told Kay, because he saw, I think he saw another good deer that morning. And I said, man, you just need to go in there and wear that spot out. You know, it's just, there, there's, there's does in there. Uh, you know, obviously there's some that maybe are coming in. And he went back in there Sunday morning. He had a west, west, northwest, I think. Um which is a good win for that spot. And he went in there after uh, a deer we call LL8. Uh, and he and he ended up killing him at like 7.30 a.m. He snort wheezed him in. Mm. And, and that was down in an area where I did some, I did quite a bit of uh, cutting down there. Um, it was just an area that was just wide open. And I went in there and did some hinge cutting and also just did some flush cutting. And it was mainly maples and, and pin oak and just shingle oak, stuff like that. And, uh, man, he was sit- Casey was sitting right on top of that cut. And that deer, when, when he snort wheezed, it's so thick in there. I think his curiosity just, cause he, you know, back in the day when I bought the farm, you could see for 300 yards in there, 200 yards at least. And then when I made a cut, it, it thickened it up so much where the deer, if you start calling in them areas, their, their curiosity just, you know, they can't see where that came from. So they actually can are very callable. And that's yeah. exactly what he did. You get him a snort wheeze. 
and he come 20, 20 yards, he couldn't kill him with the bow. Oh, man. So, shot him with shotgun. Yeah. Six-year-old eight-pointer. Shot him with the, the old slug gun. Oh man! So tell me a little bit about now that we've we've covered the deer, and we'll circle back and integrate them throughout the throughout this podcast. But tell me a little bit about your farm. What's total acreage? It's uh, two forty total. Okay, and you live on this farm? Yeah, yeah. My, my wife and family and I are lucky and blessed enough that we live on the uh, southern southern portion of it. Yep. So That's right. He's living on this farm, 240 acres, and it's kind of I, I think if you paint a picture for most people, there's a lot of guys that will relate. You've got you've got tillable acres, but overall, majority of the farm is timber. And um, go ahead, jump in. Yep, yep. It's the split is 167 timber, 73 that's tillable uh, according to FSA maps. Um, most of it, I would call it, you know, a long, long time ago, it was pasture. Uh, there are some hardwood ridges that probably weren't, that still have some, you know, sizable white oaks and, and shag bark hickory and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's got pretty good rolling topography. It's got some, you know, good terrain features, but it's also got, you know, I'd call it, uh, um, Hard, the hardwoods kind of the further east you go it drops down into a creek bottom so you got creek bottom well i'd call it habitat i guess and then it, it kind of from the creek west it actually gets up and, and looks like traditional hardwood timber yeah for me i would say you know in in understanding the difference between the eastern side and the west side and even the central part is you've got upland hardwoods which is white oaks and you've even got some red oaks mixed in, but you've got shingle oaks, and you've got some um, understory trees of you know ironwood. But then when you go east, you've got uh, even even river birch, silver maple, pin oak. Um, so kind of your uh, your your more lowland species, and uh, yeah. and cottonwood, sycamore. Yeah. If you were to look at that, I think there's so many guys that can relate to what that bottom. You, uh, is naturally occurring in the fact that unmanaged and and how it's just you know in the middle of the winter when we were there if you hadn't done the cut started the cuts or done any hinge cutting you could see two three hundred yards wide open occasional flood so you'll have your debris pile ups occasionally but and and even mud lines um, from from longer periods of flooding but it's an area that could fluctuate from year to year on how much water is in there but overall the habitat if not if if is not managed by you with a chainsaw or any other forms is going to be pretty poor yeah that's right yep i couldn't have said it better it's it's on a it's on a a a creek that gets pretty it's pretty violent even with three or excuse me, three or four inches of rain, uh, can, can put it out of its banks and, and man, it, it, it comes up fast and it goes down fast. But when it comes up, you know, if you try putting, uh, food plots in that bottom, you can get, you know, you can get burnt pretty, pretty easily with, with the right amount of rain. And then even, I mean, I've even, I've even had turkey hunts ruined because you got one, 
you know, you got one rooster down in there, and then all of a sudden we get a big giant rain that night. Well, you can't. I mean, you're going to need chest waders. And I don't, you know, I'm not, we're not, not going to duck hunt the turkeys. That's right. You're not that mad at them. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, going back to, you know, what it was before you bought it, we'll go back historically and say that most of this was probably prairie with lowland or backslope forest. Um, the fact that there are a lot of pretty good native species in, in some of your old older areas, old field areas of Indian grass and little blue stem and several other forbs that we saw just remnants of um, because obviously they're not blooming in January when I was there. Um, and so you, you have that, that part of it, and especially what is now crop field was most likely prairie or savanna. And uh, then you go to your northern northern line. You've got some giant wolfy oaks that have probably been there for mm-hmm. hundreds of years. And so overall, it just goes with what we know about that part of the that part of the state, that part of the United States, is that you had this prairie transition into savanna, transition into woodland, transition into forest, um, and kind of where you're at in elevation or in relation to creeks, kind of puts the template for what your farm was and then kind of how you can throw in mankind of yeah. of uh adding crops or adding pasture and so yours is crops um and you yeah. said about 70 acres of crop yeah i think it's yeah 70 73 something like that well we we farm uh 65 of it and the remaining of it i just leave up in you know standing soybeans so yeah um yep and so, then we got some big changes coming. Yeah, that's right. And so speaking of which, so I visited with you. You're one of our clients that uh, I was up with uh, in January. We did a walking tour, laid out all the plans, and uh, and kind of addressed what was, what was there when I was there uh, and what it looked like and then the direction we needed to go to fix uh, not only just improve the habitat so we can create healthier wildlife species or wildlife populations, but also improve the hunting. And uh, for you, you know, when we're walking through and we mentioned kind of what this looked like, uh, you know, historically and then present day is for a lot of you guys that, that are trying to paint the picture of what Louis Farm looks like, um, if you're from, from November or whenever a combine rolls through, till a planter rolls through in april or may um basically we're looking at corn stubbles soybean stubble not a lot of food available other than spilled out of the back of the combine um and so pretty short not much food value not much um especially not much cover value from the standpoint or from the time frame of november to april um, you look at the timber and there's not a whole lot of old field or young forest. There's kind of some areas that have some old field effect, but they're getting heavily encroached with eastern red cedar. So um, and then the rest of the timber was mostly closed canopy uh, with a little bit of what little bit of growth was occurring was multiflora rose or raspberries or other forms of brambles or coralberry or buckbrush as some people call it. So now, I know there's a lot of guys that can relate to that, and, you know, one of our biggest things with Louie was let's address from a from a hunting standpoint, how do we fix this quickly to show immediate results? And Louie, fortunately enough, has already fired up a chainsaw in a couple of places and had gotten to cut, and um, 
and had some major hinge cuts and, and flush cuts in some areas, and we just tried to expand on those and also create more to where you can create a whirlpool-like effect of deer movement during the during the rut. So if a doe is bedded down in one and she gets bumped, um, she she's shooting out of that cut trying to get to the next one. And if you do it correctly, you should be able to have a lot of the deer hold up on 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 your part of the farm or your part of the neighborhood to where they're going from one bedding thicket to the next bedding thicket because if your neighbors aren't doing it then you have the best cover in the neighborhood and by design that's what we laid out with louie and shoot louie sounds like uh sounds like you've been running a saw and and um it sounds like uh your deer have adapted to it well yeah yeah we uh i guess you know, this is the fifth the fifth hunting season on this farm, and uh, you know, as soon as you buy a farm that that's you know you want to turn into something special, you you try to go you know you try to get as much information as you can, and and you're you're constantly thinking about it, and you're you know you're you're listening to every podcast and every YouTube video, and there's so much information out there, and and the I guess the reason I was really attracted to Land and Legacy. Uh, was just you know the get it back to the native landscape and and your love for uh, you know maybe creating some quail habitat if we're quite if we're going to create quail habitat it's also going to be good for the deer and I grew up the son of a of a quail hunter and a, and a farmer and my dad would always it would always be about creating cover and giving them food and and I mean he had CRP. Uh, he always had CRP, even though he could have farmed it and made probably more money. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was always no-tilling, you know, because he wanted to leave a little bit of grain out there for the quail. Um, and actually those areas that he managed for upland game, you know, are good, really good for deer right now. It was a spot you, you, you overlooked because you, you just thought it was for, you know, rabbits and quail and turns out it's, it's pretty good for the deer. But, um, <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I, I had, uh, Adam come to the farm. Um, I believe it was just you know, maybe less than a year ago. It seems like it's been longer than that, but that's probably because of the, the countless hours with the chainsaw and the, the bad back he gave me. But, uh, <laughs> it, 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 we, we've, I burned through a lot of gas this, this winter, um, February, March, April, you know, just creating those, uh, those big bedding area cuts and, and, you know, uh, my farm's just loaded with, with eastern red cedar. I mean, almost to the point where, you know, uh, you know, waste, almost weights, waste uh, diameter size. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just zero value underneath them. You know, it, it was obvious. I knew something had to be done. So I've just been cutting just cedar cuts and, and, and laying them over. And, and the good thing about that is you don't have to use herbicide. You just got to fire the chainsaw up. So. Um, that, that took a majority of my winter, uh, probably, you know, I don't know how many I cut, probably a thousand if I were to guess. Yeah. And, um, in probably four different areas, you know, and in those areas, a couple of them were probably an acre in size, maybe more. And then there was a couple other areas that were smaller, but, um, you know, those cedars are still laying on the ground horizontal with needles on them. But, you know, the, the flush of, of new 
habitat has just been remarkable. I can't wait to to run a fire through there and then really see the benefits. I mean, it's it's incredible. Like, you know, it cut them in cut them in February and March, and by June and July, I was like, holy cow! You know, it was just it, was, it was really good to see, and it, yeah, and it, and it reaffirmed that you know what. You know the, the the cedar thicket thing that we throw around all the time about how how good it is for deer. Um, it really it's probably not good at all. Well, we know it's not good at all, and and this kind of reaffirmed it. Like you know, all the brows and just birds singing and 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 beautiful flowers. And I mean, it's 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 pretty cool to see. I can't wait for the, you know I can't wait to fire up the chainsaw again. You know, yeah. and get back in there. Yeah, it'll be awesome to hear how it breaks down and when a fire goes through and you get you get that vegetation starting to be removed and you really get exposed ground to see what grows back cuz you know these bedding these bedding thickets or in this case most of them were just cedar cedar tree monoculture removal and um, they're all, most of them are all like the crest of a ridge or, or the, the top of a slope. So it's kind of historically, you know, that was most likely, uh, where fires really had some hot temperatures and really got hot to where, um, they were most likely barrens or open little crests of the hill, uh, which would have been established or would have been, um, a community of grasses and forbs. Um, which would have been highly productive for wildlife. But over time, with fire being removed, eastern red cedars have really encroached. And so um, these areas are now what, shoot, I remember the very first one we walked into. Now there were some beds because, you know, we were there in January. And so, like, if you went from January to December and you ranked out, you know, the the benefits of eastern red cedar monoculture where it's just 30-foot-tall trees with nothing but shade underneath – you know, you could rank them high in December and January, but the other 10 months of the year, they're not going to rank very high. And, uh, yep. you know, when we're trying to manage for maximum productivity over the course of 12 months, it's like, you know, there's going to be a few little cedars stuck around that uh, you probably won't yep. get them all. But from the standpoint of what we're going for, that's not that's not how we want to manage and. You fired a chainsaw, and it's like, okay, we now have young forest because we're not just cutting these red cedar. There's some other stuff around that's going to stump sprout back. We're going to get some other browse uh, through brambles in here. So now we're getting better cover and more food, uh, more food acres on the farm. So check that one off the list. The other yeah. big thing that's yep. been planned out was CRP planting. That's right. Yep. Uh, I mean, from from the time I bought the place, I knew it. The farm needed, especially on the hilly clay slopes, it needed, uh, you know, s- some sort of uh, structure and soil conservation. And I, and I immediately, you know, wanted CRP. Um, in Illinois and maybe anywhere in the country, you've got to wait. I think you've got to own the farm, uh, maybe even a year or two before you can before you can get into enrollment and then there's a, there's got to be open enrollment. There actually wasn't open enrollment until just this last year. Um, and I got it signed up. I think we're putting, uh, 55 acres total. I think 5.8 of it is going to be the pollinator. Um, I didn't have to do pollinator. It did give me some more points towards, uh, you know, me, uh, I guess the chances of me getting CRP, it did give me more points on that, but, uh, 
I just wanted pollinator just just because I I think it's you know it's just great. I think there needs to be way more of it. Um, it's weird how much you start appreciating birds and butterflies and bees when you own your own piece of dirt. It's it's kind of um, you know I, I never would have thought I'd, I'd get that excited about it. It's uh, <laughs> funny, isn't it? I, yeah, it is. And I'm I'm going to be putting that pollinator to where I can see it off the back of the house you know it should be real pretty and then the rest of it uh quite about 49 acres is going into uh it's going into switchgrass indian grass big blue stem bundle flower and there's a black-eyed susan maybe Um, yeah there's there was like three or four forbs and three or four grasses if i remember right yeah yep yep so that should be you know awesome uh i think i'm gonna do that in spring uh, I think we're gonna let things green up. Uh, what, what's this? What's the stuff that blanket? You see it a lot in Illinois. It's like that purplish stuff. That yeah, it's either the... uh, hen bit or dead nettle, or not hen yeah, bit or uh, I forget the other. I just had a major. You put me on the spot. Bit. Yeah, I know it's hen bit, but there's two of them. Yeah, but yeah, hen bit yep. and, and yeah. Uh, I, th- I thought it'd be a good idea instead of instead of battling that hen bit. Just, yep. just wait for spring for it to green up, and then we'll just hit it with 2,4-D and, and glyphosate and, and and then just no-till it in, in May and just, you know, hopefully we get the right rains. I might even put, like, a nurse a cover crop with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to ask you, you guys' advice on that, but um, that's the plan, and, and it took five years. It'll be six years um, to get CRP, but I think it's just going to change the whole farm you know for the better yeah um just, how many just, just better better access to the places i gotta get and better cover and you know the deer should be comfortable and, um more quail you know, hopefully just, and, and it pays yeah hopefully more quail and, and we start edge feathering and, and getting that you know those tall grasses and we, we start seeing some quail that would be ultimate for sure yeah when is uh so you're planting in in may um what was the uh, what's the acres remind me again of what how many acres going in crp so it'll be about 55 total which would leave like 17 or 18 for me to just do whatever i want with yeah so you're Um, completely removing out of crops uh having another farm you're gonna do it yourself uh i'll probably have the same farmer farm it gotcha um and, and we'll just we'll just go share crop on it, and then you know I'll obviously want to leave some corn and beans for the deer, and then you know in that CRP you get ten percent, ten percent of the total acres you get to put into food plot, but you can't exceed five acres. So in all reality, if I could leave you know ten acres or even more in food, um, it, it could be dynamite, and all the food should be up on top where we can you know hopefully we can stick some blinds up on top and be able to visually see way more and you know suck the deer up to where you want them yep so basically we're going from when i was there in january 2020 and there really wasn't much cover um, other than cedar trees so thick that you couldn't walk through them or down in in a couple places where there were so many stems per acre that that kind of gave the false picture of cover now to where in the future you'll have 50-some acres of native grass pollinator mix 
um, to where you're going to have tons of vegetation from ankle high to chest high. And then you're going to have the bedding thickets, which are going to not only provide great woody brows and winter cover, but also food um, and cover throughout the year. And so, uh, and then as, as the bedding thickets are created and the edge feathering is done and the CRP gets growing, that's when you'll start attacking more of the general timber stand improvement to try to create an overall healthier forest, which will increase the amount of sunlight, which is in the forest. So you'll have what was 2020 January of very little cover to 2025 of a tremendous amount of cover, a tremendous amount of food a lot more huntable uh, property and, and hopefully a few coveys of quail. That would be cool. Yeah, that would be great. My, yeah, my, my pinch me moment would be a, a covey of quail, you know, hanging out in a, a little spot with edge feather, you know, coming out, uh, out of the switchgrass into my, into my, uh, corn, you know, my, my corn plot or bean plot. Would be, <laughs> would be super, my dad would, my dad would be super happy with that. That's awesome. Uh, and then we got we got hopefully some loggers coming in this winter uh, to to do some you know to do some selective cutting there. So um, a lot of changes coming, which I'm I'm super excited for. Yep, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, as we kind of start to transition and wrap up. But let's talk a little bit about the transition for you and mindset, but overall just understanding of what was lacking on the farm like when you first bought the farm five years ago was there any kind of what was like the first thing you know for me it was always well if you're going to have deer you got to do food plots but um, was there a time where you noticed that like you mentioned earlier your mindset really shifting where you were noticing the birds and the butterflies and different species yep yep I would say that the you know I knew right away that there was way too much multiple rows. Um, and I knew, you know, I, I liked the thought of all the thermal cover with, with the cedars. Yes. But then I also knew real quick, just by running trail cameras, like, you know, what should be one of the better spots of the farm to get deer, uh, during velvet. I mean, that there was literally no deer. I mean, I, I've, I've probably gotten the center of my property, there's probably 30 or 40 acres. I mean, of just solid, almost solid cedars, you know, uh, there's a few ditches going through there that, 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 you know, don't have many cedars, but I, I just noticed right away that during the summertime, my deer were only on one side of the farm and it was towards the West end where there's not as many cedars. So I knew, you know, if, if I want this to be a 365 day a year farm, we, you know, good habitat, uh, then, then I need to do something different. I mean, the deer just in the summertime, you know, I always thought, well, they'll just go in them cedar thickets and find shade. Well, I think it's, it's, it's vice versa. They go in there and they get zero air movement and there's zero brows and it's probably just a hot stuffy mess in there. So yeah. the deer just don't go in the summertime, you know, mm-hmm. but even, even since I did these cuts this last winter, I'm seeing more and more deer gravitating towards that area uh, because now there's, uh, there's, you know, better breezes going through there. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yep. Um, you know, they can, they can browse on all this new growth. Um, I've, I kicked a lot of hens up. Um, well, not a lot, but there, you know, when I would go in to cut, um, you know, or go in there to check out a cut, 
there would be hen turkeys in those cuts. I'm sure they were, you know, looking for, you know, trying to find a place to nest or, or nesting. Um, so that was, that was good to see too. Um, but yeah, I, I knew, you know, pretty shortly after I bought the place that, you know, it's not going to be just uh turnkey start shooting big deer, you know, you're <laughs> going to have to, you're going to have to do some more. I mean, even though you, you can do all that stuff but for longevity and for my kids and the next generation, uh, there, there had to been, a, you know, you got to do a lot of work, a lot of work. People have no idea the amount of work it takes to really uh, provide everything you need for, for all species. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of goes with the idea or the, the, the plans where if you're just doing food plots and feeders or whatever, and you stop doing it, it doesn't take very long for that to go away or for your work to not be present anymore but you know when you're doing these bedding thickets and then you implement prescribed fire you're gonna yeah it's gonna feel like a lot of work the first couple of years to get this stuff going but then all of a sudden you use fire and it's like outside of the fire days and a general invasive control there's not a whole lot of work that needs to be done yeah that's true and so it'll be i've already noticed i've noticed you know with all the multiple rows i've uh i've had a two years in a row now where I've ran fire through there. And I mean, uh, areas that I thought it was just super overwhelming. Like, how am I going to get rid of all this multifloral? And now, um, with, with two years of fires in my timber, it's gone. Yeah. You know? Um, it's gone. And, and then the areas, if we, if we do some selective logging and some GSI, you know, those areas that are, are gone of multifloral, hopefully will turn into something, you know, good. Yeah. As soon as that sunlight hits it, so. Yep. And I think, you know, it's great that you have that mindset because a lot of people post-harvest, you open up a timber with a timber sale and you're going to have sunlight and it's like, multi-floral rose comes up and they don't burn. It's like, it it pretty quickly is too thick to even maneuver through and not only as a Mm two-legged person, but as a four-legged deer, it's too thick. Yeah. And so that's true. Creating the fire breaks and getting uh, utilize well as you and I talked, getting getting the logger to kind of help establish some fire breaks for you, and uh, yeah. pretty soon you'll you'll be able to to burn off a majority of your farm and and keep some of those invasives, not only multiflora rose but autumn olive and and bush honeysuckle, which are present in your area, um, to keep them yeah. at bay as well and, and promote those native species that are much more beneficial to the wildlife. So it's exciting times at the at, at Louis Farm. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm just lucky to be able to have the opportunity to do all this stuff. You know, uh, I like I try to share it and, and, and get, get help when needed, but uh, I tell you what, it's pretty therapeutic going out there by yourself, you know, as long as you're staying what you're doing it's you know cut down cut down a handful of cedars or invasives and sit back and enjoy it you know that's Uh, right man it's it's pretty neat stuff i i i don't understand why everyone doesn't do it you know and when i say do it i i don't mean just hunting i just mean trying to go out and improve the habitat one way or the other it to me it's way more rewarding to shoot a deer on a farm that you've done all that work to um, than just going and shooting a random deer. That's just me personally, but I just I feel like if everybody got to experience that, um, they would be like, "Yep, this is fun. Find me a farm. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, my, you know, my buddy Casey who shot that deer Sunday morning, he, he had not really been in that area a whole lot. You know, I just kind of gave him where it was and said, you know, just follow the trail and you can't miss it. He got, when that morning he got, he shot that deer, we went, went to get him and he got down and he's like, man, this looks totally different, especially from the tree. You know, when you're up in the tree, it looks crazy good. But then once you get on the ground, you start looking around, it's just thick and it's just, you know, he just like this, this didn't used to be like this. I mean, this <laughs> yeah. is cool. There's no one. No wonder why it's crazy down here during the yeah. rut. You know, the does just have a the does have a place to escape, and the bucks know where they escape, and they just get on the downwind side of them cuts. And I mean, if your wind's right, it's it can be dynamite. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And that's exactly kind of the way we we try to design it is to, to to create these thickets that are not only beneficial just for the overall health of the of the deer, but they're phenomenal hunting strategies. And uh, yeah. if you're playing the wind right and you you know where the deer is at in the area and, okay, he's on the northeast side of the farm, uh, we've got this wind, let's go on the downwind side of this cut or that cut, and there's a pretty good chance we may see him today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's awesome. It was good to hear. I listened to your, your, your Ryan Kirby podcast the other day on, on his new farms, and it sounds like he's having great luck with, with some of the things that I've been doing too, just – sitting on the downwind side of those cuts and you know not only is it providing good habitat but they're putting some putting some deer in the back of their truck that's 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 right it's encouraging to hear other people's success you know yeah it it certainly is because you know if if with with what we recommend in our consulting services if there wasn't any success we wouldn't make it very long because it's a lot of work that gets involved especially if you're cutting in a lot of thickets or edge feathering it's like what am I doing all this for? <laughs> but yeah, when you hear yeah, other we, people, they're like, oh, my goodness. Like, you know, I, I fortunately for Matt and I, uh, and unfortunately for the listeners, is we get to hear the the clients like yourself send in pictures. Oh, I shot this deer downwind side of a bedding thicket. And it's just like during October, November, it's just constant. I mean, almost daily during certain weeks where a, a different client's reaching out, hey, I shot this one, I shot this one, I shot this one, and yeah, bedding tickets, bedding tickets. And it, it's to the point where Matt and I, there's a reason why we promote bedding tickets and Young Forest um, hotspots so much is because uh, we get more reports from people being success, successful on those than we do food plots, which should tell yeah. everyone something that maybe the bedding tickets are more important than the food during that time of the year and uh yeah and so man i there's yeah. that there, there shouldn't be anybody that listens to our podcast that doesn't know a chainsaw that's true that's true <laughs> you got my my name my neighbor another exciting thing is and you help you help consult with john my neighbor my uh, good buddy of mine longtime friend bought the neighboring property and i know he's going to do everything he can to make that better and and then what you know, and then I've got a couple other neighbors to the south that are also following, you know, uh, good habitat rules, and you know, we think way more about the habitat than the deer. Um, it's just if you can get a bunch of guys on board, you know, uh, you can create something pretty special in a, you know, short amount of time. Yeah. When you think about it. Oh, for uh, sure. I mean, it just just takes the work, just takes the work, and and plenty of plenty of gas for the chainsaw. That's right, and and this part and of the podcast is, hook, right? yeah, this part of the podcast <laughs> is brought to you by Aleve. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're going to have a sore back, and, and you're going to get tired of the sawdust down in your socks and stuff. But, um, man, it's it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, and it beats the heck out of thousands and thousands of dollars just to spend on something. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, man, I, I appreciate you coming on and telling the story of your successful fall. I, I, I'm so excited when you get the CRP planted and and a couple of years go by and, and that's starting to mature and really grow up. And I'm curious just to how how much the wildlife are going to um, utilize your farm. And, and I, you know, you've seen Covey's Aquail on adjacent farms, so I, I'm certain mm-hmm. that as soon as you get those planted uh, and the grasses get and the forbs get growing, you're going to see more and more quail start to shift and that that's what's exciting to me yeah that's right there, there's a covey right up the road and, and and there's a reason they're there and and hopefully i can get get some on my place once we get things going here so yeah i will let you you'll be the first one i you know as soon as i hear bob white singing or a covey you know come up out of the thicket man i'll you'll be the first one i i tell <laughs> i appreciate it man thanks for coming on I appreciate it. I'm good to hear from you, and and thanks for having me.